back in the morning and wipe the sleep from my eyes. Felt just like an ordinary day. Just around the corner, such a surprise. Beautiful angel materialized. Time stood still, face to face. I'm sure we'd met at another time and place. Our eyes met as you passed me by. Welcome back to Sleep for Performance Radio. This is season two. We've got a great lineup of guests on this season. And to kick it off, we have uh, Dr. Shona Halson from the Australian Institute of Sport. Shona is probably one of the most qualified people in the area of sleep and recovered recovery globally with elite athletes and I had the pleasure of doing a lot of PhD, a lot of my PhD research with Shona Halson as well. Shona is great, a uh, great person, down to earth, very practical. I think you're going to get a lot out of this episode. Um, also, just as a bit of information, we do have some advertisements in this season, which is great because that helps us raise money to improve the quality of the sound for this season and also helps us to host the website and um, the, the web platform to host the podcast and also allows us to put a little bit more time into the podcast as well. So, without any delay i'm going to get into these ads last about two or three minutes and then we'll be straight into the episode and uh enjoy this episode of sleep for performance radio is brought to you by orbiz orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries they facilitate turnaround transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement now orbis are growing their global presence across the asia pacific region europe middle east africa and the americas their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth true to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety quality and productivity so what this means for your business typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost who can beat that increasing capacity utilization throughput increase in revenue profitability and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing, and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organize a visit today to your organization. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is also brought to you by Sleep WA, Western Australia. Now, Sleep WA is one of the only few nationally accredited sleep laboratories in Western Australia, meaning that they have put their services and quality systems to the test against the national standards. They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now, I've worked with these guys before. They are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. 
So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. Consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science ReadyBand is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The ReadyBand is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is actually predicting to the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals so you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC. So it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ReadyBand can improve safety and performance in your organization. Thank you for listening to these ads. Now on to the episode. Today I'm talking with Shona Halton from the Australian Institute of Sport. Shona, how are you? Good, thanks, Ian. So where are you today, Shona? I'm actually in Queensland today, sunny Queensland, lovely 26 degrees. 
Yeah, this has been the craziest sort of late autumn, start to winter. It's, um, I think it's going to be 26 or 27 here in Perth today on the West Coast, some five-hour flight away from you. And then during the week, it's going to be up around 27, 28. And it's like, what was it, like the last two weeks of autumn? It's crazy weather. Yeah, yeah. no, I'm, I'm loving it. It can stay this warm as long as it likes. <laughs> <laughs> we had a pretty mild summer over here, so I'm hoping it, it sort of uh, continues on. We have a mild winter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, good one. Such harsh weather. There's people like in probably Sweden now listening to this snowed in, going crazy. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Not so complaining. Shona, <laughs> no, oh, we always complain. So Shona, um, can you tell us a little bit about your role and your background and where you work? Yeah, sure. So um, my background originally was in overtraining. That's what I did my PhD in and finished that in about 2002. <laughs> Um, and since then, I've been at the AIS in the in the physiology area, so and primarily working around recovery. So um, I'm a senior physiologist there at the AIS, and uh, my role is a combination of research, which involves supervision of students uh, and some of my own research, and servicing, which is um, around education and um, some stuff actually in the field. So it's a it's a bit of a mix of. Um, of things in the area specifically of recovery, which is, you know, things like, as you know, sleep, compression, um, water immersion, soft tissue therapy, those kinds of things. Okay. And so the AIS, um, for those who don't know, is the Australian Institute of Sport, um, which is similar to what you would call like a, an Olympic training centre. Is that right, Sean? Is that, is that a good way to describe it? Yes. Yep. yep. That's a good way to describe it. Yeah. So Sean and I first met when I started doing some PhD studies with the Australian Institute of Sport. Obviously, with my background in sleep, there's a big crossover into recovery. And uh, Sean was one of my co-supervisors on a number of papers. Sean was very hard to work with. That's why we couldn't talk to this podcast during the research. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you were painful too, Ian. Oh, on. painful, yeah. <laughs> Bad, yeah. I think, I think me and you actually messed around and did less work than we probably <laughs> were meant to. Every time we spoke, more it, was, laughing. Yeah, it was more laughing, I think, and, and taking the piss than anything else. So, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, Shona, um, what is recovery? You alluded to some of the kind of aspects of recovery, but when people come to you and say, I want help with recovery, what generally is, is the kind of the key areas that athletes want? And, um, you know, kind of and what are the missing, I suppose, as well. But what is overall, what, what is recovery? How could you classify it? What's the definition of it? Yeah, it's a good question. And recovery means different things to different people. So when I first started working in recovery, um, one of the things I did was went um, to a lot of places internationally and asked about, you know, what do you do for recovery and how do you do it? And most of the people said, well, what injury are you recovering from? And I was like, no, 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 not we're not talking about injured people we're just talking about athletes who um you know want to train better or compete better and you know help them recover for the next session or the next race and it was a bit of a foreign concept to a lot of people um so to me the way that we think of recovery now is really um, thinking along the lines of homeostasis so getting the individual back to balance so if you've had a hard training session um, what we want to do is get you back to um, a level where you can um, do the next the kind of training that you need to do in the next session. Um, and we can talk, I'm sure we'll talk in a minute at some point about adaptation and too much recovery, um, which is definitely topical at the moment. But the idea of getting the individual back um, to a level that they can either train or compete again. And that can be um, physiological, um, it can be psychological, um, but the idea is to try and get the most out of um, the athlete's training and to support their performance in major competitions. 
So recovery is quite different than rehabilitation. So there's two distinct things there I, I hear in that answer. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And I don't work with injured athletes. We link that to our physical therapies department to to fix them, so to speak, whereas we work with the, the healthy athletes um, and and getting them back to up to the level that they need to be at. All right. So, Shana, what kind of athletic groups do you currently work with at the, at the Australian Institute of Sport, the AIS? Yeah, so there's not many of us that work in recovery. So we really work um, across a range of sports. And um, currently, we probably work mainly with um, swimming and cycling. Um, however, we provide guidance and advice to pretty much any sport that, that comes to us. We often work through the physiologists that are embedded in the program because not many people have full-time physio. No one that I know has a full-time um, recovery staff member. So the idea is that we either work um, through the you know high-performance staff or through the physiologists and often some of that information is really um, provided at a high level that then the physiologists then um, actually conduct in the applied setting or you know, in the case of um, education or monitoring, whether that be you know, sleep or our athlete management system, sometimes we uh, work directly with the, with the athlete. So it's a bit, of a bit of a combination. All right, so there's a bit of like um, kind of as a central kind of service, so to speak, you're, you're educating those physiologists to manage it themselves and coaches, but then in, and I suppose that the really um, high-performing uh, groups such as swimming and cycling, which do quite well in Australia, there's more of a kind of a focus on those guys. But then for individual athletes who may be struggling with recovery, they can have like one-on-one consultations and, um, you know, individual interventions. Yes, yeah, and, and that's the way that we really are trying to go is as individual as possible. So the days where everyone does the same recovery techniques all the time, all year round, um, has certainly changed. That philosophy changed you know, over the last few years. We try to tailor it to the individual, um, tailor it to the sport, tailor it to the training session, tailor it to the whatever the athlete themselves might be going through. Um, and especially, you know, as you know, with sleep, everyone's so different. And, you know, the reasons that they may or may not sleep well is, is going to be very, very different amongst, um, amongst all the individuals and, and even across sports. So it's, uh, it's one of those things where spending the time with the individual, with the athlete, is, is um, definitely worthwhile. Yeah, for sure. Shona, I've been to the Australian Institute of Sport uh, Recovery Centre, which is uh, quite impressive. Could you give us an overview of those type of um, services that in an elite level, like at the IES that you have, so when someone walks in the door and they look kind of left to right, what's in that, in that room that people can avail of in terms of recovery? Yeah, so we've divided it um, into um, a dry area and a, and the wet area. So um, when I first started work at AIS, that's my job was to um, design the centre and put in what I what I wanted. So it has evolved a little bit over time, but essentially what we wanted to do is be able to cater for all athletes, no, no matter what sport they were they were um, participating in. So you walk in in the in the initial area we use for stretching. Um, we have um, small little kitchen in there which for sorry there's a little bit of nutrition area there we have a flotation tank um, we now have a, a room that we use that the athletes can use it's just like almost like a timeout room a relaxation room um, we have some um, um, iPads and music and things in there for relaxation meditation mindfulness kind of thing um, and then the wet area is essentially um, as it sounds, um, it's got lots of water in it, and um, a big area with a hot spa with jets for different parts of the body, so legs um, versus the body. And we have a river, which is like 
28 degrees, um, which you can um, work against. So you can either walk against the flow of the water or with the flow of the water. So you can either have a relaxing session or a hard session. Um, and then we have the cold water immersion area, which you know people can think of as, as the ice baths. Um, and we have a deep area so you can submerge to your um, above your shoulders. And then we also have a, a shallower area where you can walk around and be active in cold water. So we've tried to cater for um, obviously the hot, the cold, the intermediate temperature, to be active in warm water, be active in cold water, um, and to have effects um, for different parts of the body as well for some of the shorter athletes as well as some of the, the taller athletes. So um, hopefully through that range of of different strategies that we have in the centre, then we can cater for most of the sports. And we also have in the dry area, um, we have some sort of massage chairs, but um, they're not really there for, um, for massage per se, but we um, use the um, Normatec and the recovery pump boots in there as well. So they're the, um, the pneumatic compression and a lot of athletes like those as well. Okay. So, Shawnee, you spoke there about hot and cold, and this is obviously very topical amongst um, elite athletes, highly trained athletes, amateur athletes, and also people out there spruiking bro science. Um, so, <laughs> bro science might be the most scientifically unvalidated science, uh, if that's yeah. even so to speak. Um, so, because <laughs> this is a pain in my ass, what is best, yeah. Shona, hot or cold therapy? <laughs> <laughs> and I know the answer you're going to give. That's why I'm asking you. <laughs> yeah, the typical scientist answer, it depends. Exactly. Um, <laughs> I call it the economist answer, it depends. <laughs> yeah, and it's funny because people just want black and white. And mm. it's like, well, that doesn't happen. There's there's a lot of grey and um, you know, black and white doesn't really work in the real world because the more you know about a topic, obviously, the more you can understand when to apply that um, different strategy. So there are times and um, there are certain athletes and there are certain training sessions that different water will um, be better for. So, for example, hot water is a physiological stressor. Um, so it obviously increases um, your, you know, can increase your heart rate. It can, you know, obviously increase, elevate your temperature. And so you can use hot water as a stimulus um, for an adaptive response um, as a passive way to cause additional physiological stress. I don't think hot on its own is a great recovery strategy with the exception that um, if you haven't done, a, you know, a lot of hard training and you need, when you, you know, you want to relax and you want to jump in a spa and you've got some good mental recovery and you're just, you know, having a bit of downtime and you don't stay in there for a, you know, super long amount of time, then, yeah, great. Hot water immersion can be a nice little recovery strategy. But generally speaking, using hot water immersion is considered a stressor. Um, cold water, sorry. Oh, I don't know what happened there. Uh, sorry, Sean, before we move on from the hot water one, I read somewhere a while ago, and I believe it was in a scientific paper, um, is it true that hot water will actually, that stimulus effect will help when people are in a hypertrophy phase? So obviously they want to get bigger after lifting mm -hmm. weights, then hot water will have some benefit increasing blood flow to those muscles? Yeah, there's, it's, there's not really strong evidence out there for that, but that is part of the theory. So there hasn't been a lot of work done in that area, but yes, that's, that's one of the um, the, the areas, you know, changing blood volume um, and that can help in the overall adaptation process. So the thing to remember, though, is that 
using different kinds of strategies and experimenting with them post-exercise. There's nothing wrong with that, but keeping some good um, data or some good monitoring tools to, to be able to look back and go, mm, well, you know, maybe, you know, the athlete didn't perform as well in training at this time. Um, maybe they were, they got more illness or, or were more prone to injury during that time, or maybe they were less like, so experience, there's no hard and fast rule saying, you know, that we have to stick certain recovery strategies but if you're going to experiment um try and collect some data so that you can look back and determine whether or not that was a good or a bad thing and yes we ask athletes do they like it do they enjoy it and that's definitely important we don't want people doing recovery strategies that absolutely hate um that's not good for their overall recovery either um but getting an understanding of how how the athlete responds to different strategies is important um sorry go ahead Yes, yeah, so we, we know more about the cold water immersion and the contrast water immersion. So contrast obviously going from the cold to hot. With the cold water immersion, there's some really, you know, I still go to conferences and hear students stand up, you know, on a student saying, you know, doing this project because there's no evidence on cold water immersion. Like, there is a lot of evidence. You know, there's meta-analyses now, there's review articles. And I think you know, the general consensus now is for acute recovery, so 24 to 48 hours for the majority of sports, cold water immersion, if done correctly, um, is going to be beneficial and um, for subsequent performance, subsequent training. The questions now that are being asked are around adaptation and the training phase. So you know, if you're trying to build up a level of, um, level of fitness um, and you've got, you're in your, um, uh, you're doing some endurance work and your base training, you're just building, doing Ks to try and get fit. Yeah. Maybe you, you might not want um, cold water immersion in that period of time or you might play around with it, take some out, be a bit conservative. But acutely, we know that there's, um, there's some pretty good benefits for cold as well as, as well as cold. And so, Shona, on that same topic of um, hot and cold, obviously in the last couple of years, cryotherapy has been getting a lot of um, airplay on podcasts or, you know, being advertised. Mm. Um, from my research of looking at cryotherapy up until the last few months ago, and I looked at some reviews, there's no conclusive evidence showing that cryotherapy is better than, you know, basically submerging yourself in cold water, so to speak. It's, um, the only difference would be the price. Um, yeah, per session. So is there anything new that's out there on cryotherapy um, is, is first of all. And second of all, are, are you guys using cryotherapy at the Olympic level? Yeah, good question. So there's, hasn't, there's been little bits and pieces of research come out using um, cryotherapy. And in this case, you know, we're usually referring to the, to the chambers. Um, and there, there's been bits and pieces around that they reduce inflammation. And like a lot of recovery strategies, um, cryotherapy came from the medical world. So we think, okay, it works for a sick patient. Well, it might work for an athlete, a bit of, bit of bro science in there. And um, some of the actual strategies do translate quite well to the, to the tired athlete, some of these medical strategies, but some of them just don't. Um, the cryotherapy chambers, there is some evidence around reducing inflammation and they were originally used in um, you know, um, patients with rheumatoid arthritis or some of these inflammatory um, illnesses. And there is some evidence about reducing inflammation, but the translation across to performance hasn't been quite as good. And um, so there's not that much data um, about 
um, cryotherapy improving before, uh, improving performance. And when you um, obviously think about water, water conducts heat much, much better than air, about 25 times greater than air. So hopping in an ice bath for 15 minutes, um, I've been colder than when I've been in a, in a cryotherapy chamber because of the, the conductive capacity um, of water. So we did um, at the AAS look into getting a cryotherapy chamber. We did not get one. Um, the ongoing costs um, and the maintenance are significantly high. We already invested a lot of money in a recovery centre. And there are um, obviously portable um, cryotherapy devices that are out there. And look, I don't have, um, you know, a team um, came to me um, not last year, the year before, and they were over in Europe and they had a long tour. And they said, oh, what do you think? You know, we've got access to these portable cryotherapy chambers. I was like, why not? Like, they're not going to hurt you. Um, it's the end of a tour. The players are looking for something a little bit different. They might have a little bit of a psychological edge that they think they're doing something that no one else is doing, a bit of a placebo effect maybe. It's not going to harm them, um, so why not? So sometimes I think with some of these strategies, there's also this um, the idea of mixing things up and not doing the same thing all the time and the athletes just not, not being quite so monotonous and um, them thinking, well, this is pretty cool and pretty different. And if it's not harmful, like if we don't think it's going to do damage, then um, I don't see why not. And sometimes these cryotherapy chambers can be that. They can be just a little something different in the program to, to mix things up. Well, coming back to the scientific evidence, um, you know, comparing cold water immersion therapy versus cryo, there is no, there's no, you know, significant advantage from cryotherapy over ice so for example if a, if, a, if a person's sitting at home and saying if i buy a five dollar bag of ice and throw it into my bathtub and sitting there for 15 minutes are they going to get the same benefit as going and paying a hundred dollars for a cryotherapy session uh there was actually there's been one paper comparing the two and cold water immersion actually came out better than um than cryotherapy but again one paper um one paper comparing the two strategies so at the moment we'd probably lean towards um towards water immersion Okay, so Sean, picking up on your on your comments there about different strategies for different people, I want to kind of go into some about age, and there might be a mm-hmm. bit of a selfish background mm-hmm. there for me. But um, you know, some athletes, you know, I, I enjoy. Let's say, for example, in the in the summer, I've got no problem doing cold water showers after training, particularly I've been running or lifting weights. I actually quite like it. But in the morning, for example, I find that you know my joints in my body are too stiff from years of injuries or impact sports where if I have a cold shower in the morning, I feel mm. like my back is going to break. I can't catch mm. my breath. Um, yeah. You know, that sort, of, that sort of feeling. So I tend, generally tend to use like heat when I'm stiff and sore yes. to get moving. But post-trend, I'll use uh, cold water immersion therapy or, or sort of cold showers or even, you know, jump in the ocean. Um, what, what's your thoughts on that? Do people do that? I haven't really looked at it, looked at mm. it sort of systematically, but... Um, it's something I hear off other people as well, particularly those probably over 35. Yeah, look, I, um, you're right. There's actually no um, real science out there looking at the effects of age. Um, however, having said that, um, we do, you know, the older athletes, and you're exactly right in what you say, if you've had niggles, you've had injuries, you've had previous issues, um, then you're more tailoring your recovery strategy around um, you know, helping those particular issues rather than your overall um, general recovery. So, and heat can be really nice for those kinds of things. So, and the other thing is that, you know, again, if we're talking about 
and returning to homeostasis. You know, when it's freezing cold in Canberra and people, athletes wow. might have been training mm-hmm. outdoors, you know, the last thing that we want to do is throw them in a really uncomfortable ice bath for a long period of time. You know, warm water immersion, hot water immersion is totally okay. Um, and so tailoring your the different temperatures to your needs, um, and that may be, you know, warm and massage if you're you know, you've got tightness or soreness or you're looking at main maintenance from injuries and those kinds of things, fantastic. And then obviously what you're doing with the water immersion after, you know, the cold water exposure after certain training is um, is also good. So, you yeah, look, and I think someone who's a little bit older, like someone like yourself, like you would totally know your body, you would know how it responds to different things, you would know it better than anyone else that you could talk to. Um, and so if you've got individuals like that who pay a lot of attention and who have a brain and who are going to give things a try, then yeah, totally trust them. Trust them to make, you know, they know more than what we can look at in scientific journals. So um, I think that the way you're doing things is um, is a good approach. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point when we talk about, you know, you, you alluded to earlier on about sports science, but even physiology, biology, <coughs> excuse me, is that is the actual fact that it has to be tailor-made. We look at these papers and they have these big effects or these impacts, but it's, it's mean data and there's always going to be outliers in that. So um, yeah. that's the same too with even training strategies as well. So yeah, it's kind of look between the numbers as well and look at the individual differences. And also a very important point is about speaking to the individual as well. And we certainly yeah. see that in the sleep world as well. There's no point making somebody sleep, you know, 10 hours in bed and doing everything just by the book. But if they're waking up every time, you know, after seven mm. hours, well, then you're best off just getting out of bed, you know. Um, so there's, all, there's always different strategies for different people. Mm, most definitely. So, Shona, um, recovery um, will take on many different um, probably modalities, as you said. But what about if someone's getting ready for a competition, sort of training, we'll say pre-comp, so we'll take the classic example. Somebody is um, competing in a either an individual event, let's say they run a 5K race on a Saturday, or you've got somebody competing in a rugby union game on a Saturday. Um, they'll have a pre and post, so leading up to that game, they're obviously going to be in preparation mode, and then after that game or event, they're going to be sort of in recovery, mm-hmm. for potentially another event the following week. How do you tailor recovery? What's some of the principles that you would look at before and, and immediately after a competition and then the days after a competition. Do you kind of segment it looking at that or is there a different approach? Mm. No, so that's um, a great question. And I'll use the rugby union example. So, you know, as you know, probably captains run on the Friday um, and then playing on the Saturday night. Um, on the Friday, you know, they don't have a lot to actually recover from. Um, You know, probably had a lightish day on the Thursday, probably had the Wednesday off, you know, a training session on Thursday. Friday's a light captain's run. You know, they're just trying to recover from the week before, really, is is what they're trying to do. So recovery on the Friday, say, for a rugby union team, I would um, focus on any, you know, if there are um, players that have soreness still or a bit of fatigue, you know, you'd be targeting that. But I'd really be giving them. So when we have rugby union athletes come into um, the recovery centre um, before, the, you know, the day before a game or rugby league players, I like to give them a choice of what they would like to do. Um, give them a few options of different strategies. Here's, here's, you know, five different protocols that we think are good. You know, knock yourself out. And, you know, we do know um, Polynesian athletes don't tend to like cold water at all. Um, and so, you know, these guys are going to jump in the spa and they're going to feel good and that's kind of what we want 
pre-game. We want them to feel good, deal with any little niggling issues that they have, but they're not really recovering from anything per se unless they've got, um, you know, um, fatigue that's still from previous training sessions or games. Post-game is obviously a very different story. You've got your, you know, 24-hour, you know, window of opportunity there where you can really try and maximise your your recovery. Most of them will obviously have Sunday off. That might include some rehab. Um, Monday and Tuesday, then they're getting back into training. So you really want to be able to um, help reduce that soreness because that's primarily what it is, is reducing that soreness so that they're ready for the um, for the next few days and what I like to do post game is really to kind of immobilize so lots of cold water immersion um, if possible usually not too much heat because quite often you know obviously rugby union they're going to be beaten up and you know may have bruising and those kinds of things so I like I like the cold or contrast for the guys who aren't injured um, and then progressively, so that would be, say, the Saturday night, doing some cold water immersion, um, bits and wearing some compression garments. And then the next couple of days is about getting active again. Um, so if you're going to do pool work, I like um, walking, stretching in the pool, um, a little bit of light activity to start again, um, and then just progressively get them get them moving again. So I like immediate immobilisation and then um, some some more movement, treatment, stretching, a bit more active on the days after. So compression garments, Shona, after a competition, um, they're, they're just used for recovery, so they're not used for training or performance. Yes. So generally speaking, the um, there's a few ways that compression garments um, are believed to work, and there's more and more science now around them. So there's obviously improved blood flow. That's where, again, it's another one of these things that came from the medical world, um, you know, medical-grade compression for people with um, venous insufficiencies. Um, now, most athletes don't have venous insufficiencies. Most of them um, have pretty good blood flow. And when you're exercising, you have pretty good blood flow. Um, so generally speaking, I like compression garments for the recovery period um, more so than during exercise because your blood flow is already pretty high. Um, the caveat to that is we've just got some data um, where we've looked at compression and muscle oscillation. So we know that, you know, when you're running, when you're jumping, you have muscle oscillations and muscle wobble is a, you know, non-technical way to describe it and what compression garments does is really contain that muscle um, so you get less muscle movement and it's there's some evidence to suggest that the more muscle movement you have the more muscle damage that you will get as a consequence so um, minimizing some of that muscle damage can be um, a good thing for subsequent um, soreness so basically, um, wearing compression garments during exercise, probably not around blood flow, blood flow, but more directed to this muscle oscillation idea. Um, wearing compression garments in the recovery period, what you're really trying to do is um, maintain or try and increase um, your blood flow and help. Um, help that process of, especially, you know, if you've just finished a, a game or a long run and you've got a long car drive or a bus ride or a plane ride and you're sitting there for long periods of time um, and you don't have a lot of um, activity, then the compression garments can be really good to help um, keep that blood flow um, going. Yeah, we had Georgia Roman on um, last year speaking about jet lag and, and the use of compression. And, you know, she advocated the use of, you know, basically the socks that will go over your foot up to your ankle as opposed to just the calf sleeves which would be better as well um, yeah exactly and we've i've got off planes with 
um, athletes who have worn just tights, compression tights with no feet in it, and the actual ankle can act, the, the, if it's too tight around the ankle, it can act as a tourniquet and do the ap- absolute opposite of what you actually want to, to achieve. Yeah, that happened to me one time when I went back from Sydney after doing a 100k run. The next day, I had skins on underneath my jeans and halfway through, I thought I was going to absolutely explode. Um, yeah, yeah, I looked on my feet and it was like Fred Flintstone feet and I was too hot and I was getting too yeah uncomfortable yeah. and I had to run into the toilet and just get them off me because I was like freaking out. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Not what you want to happen. No. Um, yeah. I have to admit, Sean, I have practiced... Um, well, I have competed in some 50 cares and 100 cares using the calf sleeves after speaking to Nathan mm-hmm. Mercy at the AIS. And I did find that the calf sleeve compression did help with that lateral muscle oscillation for me, particularly in off-road mm-hmm. mountain running. And so my yep. calves the next day were, were not quite as sore. In terms of using them for shorter runs, running over under, under three hours, I didn't really find much of a difference. But in the long distances, when once I went over 50, there was definitely a, a difference in my calves, I found. Yeah, and that makes perfect sense. And especially also when you think about, um, you know, relative performance. So for you, you know, a short run is probably not going to result in a lot of muscle damage for you, whereas for someone else out there, that may actually be um, significant enough to induce some muscle damage. So um, relative, you know, for you, um, that's a short run. So, yeah, it's probably not going to cause a lot of... um, a lot of a lot of damage your your, your um, movement from homeostasis is probably not that great because it's easy for you yeah. and whereas the you know the longer runs are going to really result in um, that damage and that's exactly what we, we were looking at running and jumping when we saw the reduced um, muscle oscillation so that makes it's perfect so Sean about two months ago I bit like Forrest Gump I got up out of bed and I said that's it I think I'm done we're running and my wife looked at me and went, you're done. I went, yeah, I think I'm done. I need a break. So I, mm-hmm. I, I, jumped, off the, uh, I jumped off the treadmill, so to speak, and uh, I, decided, I decided to start swimming. Now, if you've ever seen me swim, Shauna, it's like a rock um, with two matchsticks spinning around in a circle. Um, so I've been trying to swim for the last two months with some, some success, um, but looks very ugly. Uh, I joined I joined a master's group where the average age is probably 72 and they're all beating my ass. Um, but interestingly enough, I had a conversation with a guy there last week and he, yeah, he's an older gentleman and he swears by the fact that he bought these new jammers, which are swimming togs that basically look like compression garments down to your knee. Mm-hmm. He swears they're making them go faster. Now, mm-hmm. I, I, I said, I don't know about that, but he got quite irate and said, no, they are. Um, what would you say to people that... <laughs> <laughs> that are saying that like compression shorts, compression socks are making them go faster, or do you just let them off and say, oh, that's good, or would you have a conversation with them? <laughs> um, yeah, look, I would I'd probably have um, have a bit of a conversation with them, um, <laughs> have, have a bit of a chat. But, I mean, look, you know, some of these, you know, swimming is, is one of the, you know, it's one of the most interesting sports to look at recovery for because you don't get high core temperatures, you don't get muscle damage, um, I, it sounds like you swim like I swim, so that means it's actually a hard workout when you're really oh, yeah. in a fight, it's hard. Um, so, um, but when you look at these, um, you know, that's why the suits were banned, you know, um, because that's why a lot of the world records are still swimmers in suits because they make you buoyant um, and 
um, a lot of, you know, when you look at um, some of the compression garments that are sold now, the reason why a lot of people are wearing them is because they make you look small. <laughs> um, so Kim Kardashian's a bit of a fan of two times you. And when you look at what they do, they compress and they, they actually, they're like giant spanks. And so a lot of the reason people wear these compression garments um, or really tight suits is because, one, they look good in them, um, and two, if you're swimming, you're, gonna, you're going to float better. So, um, yeah, there may be some so some of the ideas of why people wear their compression may be different from what we might think is um, is a good idea. Yeah, well, I need all the, all the help I can get. I'm a complete sinker, and I think that comes back to the fact is when you look at a DEXA scan, you know, my legs are probably about five times that the density is what I've been told uh, compared to a, from, from running compared to some yeah. of my age groups. So I think just in my legs. So when I jump into the water and try to go face down, I just sink. So my, swim, my swimming coach, I'm getting some private lessons, has uh, just looked at me the first time and oh my dear, we have a sinker, she said. Okay, time for a different strategy. Get those fins on and keep moving. Because, yeah. yeah. Get through the water fast. Yeah. You're just, you're just a sinker. So yeah. Anyway, we'll move off my uh, poor swimming. Um, I'm up to two and a half k's at the moment, but it's, yeah, when I get out, I'm like, uh, I'm like a newborn giraffe walking around. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, <I don't. laughs> so another question that comes up about recovery and which often happens after a competition as well or after a race, and I'm just as guilty as this, and particularly in weight-dependent sports like combat sports, is people will just eat anything and everything. Um, you know, after a competition uh, or after training, and I certainly, I certainly get into this habit sometimes at like 3 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm just like going through the fridge like a rat, getting everything out. Um, can nutrition make a difference to recovery? And particularly, you mentioned inflammation earlier on. So I'm interested in about the link between nutrition, inflammation, you know, preparation for a comp and after a competition, um, and in nutrition as well. Can we can we also maybe touch on alcohol and caffeine and, and the effects of all of those mm. as well? I know there's a lot in that question, but um, yeah. Yeah. yeah, no, and I'm, 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 I'll put the disclaimer out there. I'm, I'm not a dietitian, but I've had the, um, been very fortunate to work with some of the best in the world at AIS. So, um, we do know that nutrition is one of the most important aspects of recovery. Um, so whether that be replacing the carbohydrate, um, putting some protein in to repair the muscle, um, putting the fluids back if you've been um, dehydrated. It, there's, you know, thirty. 40 years of good research in the area around nutrition. Like, it's absolutely vital, um, especially if you're um, involved in a sport, like, say, say, swimming, for example, where you've got heats in the morning, finals in the afternoon, and um, you're doing that over six or seven days. And so when you've got short periods of time, you, you know, you, putting that nutrition back is absolutely vital to, to performance. So um, carbohydrate, protein, Electrolytes are your just your standards. Um, we know now that you know if you're if you have a low energy intake. So some of these um, athletes who are trying to be really lean, um, you can especially in females increase your risk of getting sick. Um, there's some quite good research now coming out about that. Um, so obviously we you know sickness is not recovery, but we need to make sure that you're actually able to train and able to compete. Um, so not being sick is um, is really important. Um, when it comes to, you know, some people, um, like you've described, really like to, you know, eat a lot. Others struggle, you know, they lose their appetite. Um, and that's where things like the supplements can be good because they're sort of easy to consume. 
Um, you know, it might people might not want to sit down to a big meal, but they can, you know, drink a quick protein shake or, a, you know, some Gatorade or something like that. So um, the dietitians always recommend real food if you can. Um, so, you know, the supplements, the bars and those things can be useful if um, you're going to have a little bit of time before you get to your dinner or to the dining hall or to a restaurant. Um, that could be a quick way of getting, a quick and convenient way of getting those um, energy needs back in. Um, caffeine is a really interesting one, and I know you've done um, work in this area, but, you know, we sit down with, you know, a lot of our athletes who have night competitions who will take caffeine. Now, most athletes, a little bit of caffeine's good, so a lot's going to be better, and that's where the education around you don't actually need that much caffeine to get a performance benefit, which is why it's been taken off the band list now. So you don't need massive amounts of, of caffeine. Um, how, however, having said that, if an athlete comes to me and they've been in discussion with their sports dietitian and they have caffeine before a night event, um, I'm completely happy with that if they think that that's beneficial for their performance. Now, obviously, it may have an impact on sleep, um, but, you know, it's all well and good to be the best, you know, sleeping athlete in the world, but if you're not winning anything, does it, you know, does it really matter? Um, so for us, it's like if you need caffeine, yes, take it. Take it in the right doses. Save it for when you really need it. Don't go around taking it all the time because um, obviously we know that it can have an effect on sleep and be highly, highly individual. Um, alcohol is an interesting one. We know that um, it can impair um, glycogen resynthesis. Um, so putting, the, putting those carbs back into the system, it can impair that in the muscle. We also know it can impair sleep help you fall asleep but um, overall it has a negative effect on um, sleep architecture um, it also can have um, an influence on re reduced testosterone release during sleep so um, a lot of people you know, as you know would like a, a little glass of a couple of glasses of wine to kind of wind down um, in athletes it can be more than a couple of glasses and um, it's really not helping that recovery process. So when you think, again, you've got that 24, 48-hour period of time that you can really um, work on your recovery, alcohol would be the last thing that you would want to take in that, in that recovery period. So um, it's not a good nutritional um, uh, intervention. So there's a lot of work done now on, you know, supplements and you know, lots of different things that might be beneficial to recovery. Although, again, have to stress that, you know, if you're, if, you know, anyone out there is an athlete who's actually competing, then you have to be very, very careful about what's in those supplements and inadvertent positive tests because yeah. Yeah. out there, there's, there's a lot of things. And sticking with the tried and true and you're just good food um, is generally the way to go. Yeah. No, very interesting point, Sean. I think as well with your caffeine, uh, the points are very, <clears throat> very relevant. I think... If you're taking caffeine, I think it's it's more about the timing. So if you're competing at nighttime, yeah. I think there's no harm in taking caffeine, but take it before the competition so it's going to peak. So know your body, like you were saying, if yeah. individual responses. So there's no point in taking caffeine five minutes beforehand if it's not going to peak mm -hmm. for an hour, then you're not going to get the ergogenic yeah. effect, which is going to impact sleep. And secondly, if you are competing at nighttime, you know you should be moving your body more towards that owl chronotype where you go to bed late and get up late. So. It's unrealistic to, to ask a swimmer to swim at nine o'clock at night and then go to bed at 10 o'clock because that's what the kind of the science says. I'd be saying to that athlete, no, it's probably going to be more like one or two in the morning because we need to cool down, wind down, rehydrate, refeed, 
um, let that caffeine, you know, sort of disappear from the body or at least get to its half-life. But then the next morning, conversely, don't expect the athlete to get up at half six to go and do recovery. Let the athlete mm-hmm. sleep till 10 or 11, so completely, you know, shift the, shift the timing around. Yeah, exactly. And it's still, and you probably get asked it too. I get asked it all the time, what time should we have recovery sessions on a Sunday? And I say as late as possible. But I do say also it does depend on the culture of the team because, um, you know, a lot, of, a lot of times if you have a misbehaving team, um, a lot of the time the coaches want to schedule things early, such as try and stop them from going out at night and drinking alcohol. Um, so it's a, and then you have a lot of the staff who are like, well, I don't want to come in at 10 o'clock because I want to have the rest of my Sunday. Um, but if you're actually thinking about the athlete and you're treating them like they're doing all the right things, 100%, the last thing you want to do is cut their sleep off at 6.30 in the morning and um, get them up for a recovery session. And I think about it like, you know, an ice bath, yes, we know they work. Compression, yes, we know it works. But, you know, we know the value of sleep and getting nine hours of sleep versus 15 minutes in an ice bath, I know what I would choose. So waking people up early for recovery does not make any sense to me. Yeah, it's interesting. I know some other teams as well um, here in Australia and overseas as well that actually fly after a game as well. So they'll fly across mm. time zones you know, straight away because they're trying to manage the cultural um, aspects yeah. of the team where really what you should be trying to do is address those cultural aspects. And you know, I think that if you're a professional athlete, you should behave like a professional athlete, you know, just because you went out and got drunk when you were 16 at school or you know, playing yeah. sport on the weekend or acting like an amateur is, is to, in my opinion, it's just not, it's just not on. You need to, if you're going to be a professional, act like a professional. And so, you know, those yeah. things around, allowing that time for sleep um, after the game and the next morning as well as late as possible. Or do we give the, do we give the athletes a kind of a point system and say, look, you've got to achieve three points tomorrow. It's up to you how you want to do it. If some people want to go down the next morning at nine o'clock and jump in the ocean, the can is a small group but you might get one yeah. point for 20 minutes in cold water, but whether it be the ocean or an ice bath, you might get another mm. point for doing a, a two kilometer walk and you might get another point for stretching for 20 minutes. So, you know, if you really want to be a, a professional athlete, you should be empowered, educated, and, um, you know, have the discipline to do that yourself as well. And in, in some cases, I think. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think, you know, athletes, we it's easy to treat them, like children or treat them like, you know, that they don't know what they're doing and and give them schedules and timetables and, you know, all these kinds of things where they're not taught to think for themselves. And um, to me, and this is just my opinion, but choice is really important. And, you know, I would hate to be told what to do, where I need to be, every single thing I need to do every second of the day. Um, Someone says to me, hey, look, you've got, you can do, you've got these options, you've got that, you know. Um, I think that's a much better approach, especially with, you know, experienced athletes who've been around for a while. Yeah, that's why I left the army, Shona. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I forgot you were in the army. <laughs> I'm hurrying and I cannot see you in the army. <laughs> neither, neither can I anymore. And I think a lot of people would laugh at that statement anyway. But there you go, five years. We, we, we do our time and we move on. Um, yeah. Shona, coming into the last part of this, um, I want to ask you, what, what's the... Um, What's the biggest mistakes or the most common mistakes that athletes or non-athletes make about recovery and what's some of the misconceptions that people have? What's the big things that you see that people keep repeating that you kind of roll your eyes and go, God, not this again? <laughs> I think there's a couple of things. Um, I think the first one is just trying, uh, going out and um, believing what 
people like what anyone says so there's a whole lot you know, we all know there's gurus out there we all know there's bro science and you know i don't have a problem with people trying things but you know spending a lot of money on something and not even investigating you know whether there's any potential benefits to it or not you know there's just so much crap out there and you would know and even the sleep devices like people come to you and they sell you this <laughs> device and you say well does it have any, have you done a study to compare it to polysomnography to the gold standard? Oh, no, but we know it measures sleep and measures sleep architecture. So I think the biggest mistake is that people don't educate themselves to the basic level to ask the basic questions because um, usually you can, you know, the gurus are going to back away pretty quickly when you, when you ask um, the right questions. Um, I think the other thing that some people do wrong is... Um, they find something that they like and they do it all the time and they, um, they're, you know, so for example, it's like ice baths, you know, back in the day, everyone used to do the same duration, the same, everyone used to do it after every training session. Um, and now I think we're, you know, we periodise, um, we periodise recovery, like we periodise nutrition, like we periodise training. Let's start to think a little bit more about not just what we use, but how and when we actually use it. Um, so I think that's another thing about it, not, and that's not really educating yourself too much on the wide world of recovery, but um, understanding yourself and paying attention to, um, to your own body and doing some actual form, um, form of monitoring. And then I think the other one, and you would know this, there's just so many misconceptions about sleep because everyone sleeps, everyone's an expert and everyone puts their ideas onto onto other people. And I think that, you know, the area where people can get in a lot of trouble is using some of these devices now that don't actually, that aren't actually accurate, reliable or valid. Um, and then, you know, becoming quite obsessed with the numbers and obsessed with the data and, um, you know, athletes wearing devices that tell you that you've got two hours of deep sleep, you know, going up to a coach and saying, I'm not going to sleep, I'm not going to train well today because I only got two hours of deep sleep. When one, it doesn't even measure that. Um, two, one night of bad sleep not the end of the world. Um, and so people getting this technology and becoming a little bit obsessive with it um, and, again, not understanding that this stuff probably doesn't even really work. Um, you're better off just keeping a sleep diary, really, than, than some of these devices. So I think it's this kind of obsessiveness that can um, that can cause problems and also to compare yourself to other people um, when you know you're your own individual and if someone else needs 10 hours of sleep or four hours of sleep, well, just treat yourself as an individual and, um, and ask the right questions when gurus try to sell you stuff that's absolutely I think that's a great point because, um, you know, when you're talking about the sleep world and um, you're talking about deep sleep and all that sort of stuff, like <sighs> the, some of these devices that are coming out, I, exactly to your point, Shona, they're, they're crap and they don't measure things and they say they do, but there's no validation. So then people get yeah. kind of pissed off and go, well, how can they do that? Well, it's just a device. Like they can, they can do whatever they want. They can mark it however they want. And then yeah. the other one you get, you know, as you alluded to there about deep sleep, is like people have this idea that deep sleep is the number one sleep you need and all the rest is difficult, is, is crap, mm. you know? And it's like, well, they're all, it's all important for different reasons, just like all aspects of recovery. So, yeah. you know, you can't just pick one and go for that. It has to be, has to be across everything. And I think you, you make a great point. We're losing some of the basics that we could, we could get some massive improvements with athletes or even an in industry or across society and the community with some basic education about changes as opposed to using a technology 
piece mm-hmm. for it. And this is something I see in the industry as well, uh, in, um, sorry, like mine and oil and gas industry. Everybody wants a technology that's going to solve something. And unfortunately, the technology is not a silver bullet. I'm, I see the same thing in sports, you know, and mm-hmm. um, lots of athletes looking for like the, the silver bullet to make them perform better. Or oh, if, I, if, if I have a, a cold immersion bath and then I'm on a ketogenic diet, and I lift kettlebells and, you know, I, I do a triathlon on the weekend. It's, wait now, hold on, wait now. What do you want to be? Yeah. I'm a boxer. So you're a boxer, but you want to be doing all these five other things. So you've just like picked up all these things that you want to do. I think you should be boxing yeah. first, you know? Mm. And then on top of that, we'll work out what you need to become a boxer. But people are just like cherry picking stuff and, you know, I'm yeah. gonna, and they're just flipping from one thing to the next thing, you know? Exactly. And people want, um, as you alluded to, the simple, uh, simple, easy solution. And unfortunately, hard work, um, training properly, eating right and sleeping right, you know, there's no point. You know, I had a conversation with, I won't say who it is, um, but they were talking about this particular supplement that may be, Spence supplement that may be, may be good for sleep and recovery. And I was just like, but I have seen the data on your team and they sleep horrifically. Um, so how about we pay attention to the big things like sleep, like nutrition and like training and get those right. Um, and, you know, for athletes, again, I'm sure you know, most of the majority of them, you know, they don't have medical sleep disorders. You know, they just watch Insta- they just watch Netflix and Instagram. You know, it's, it's getting them <laughs> away from technology. It's is the, is the biggest thing. It's behaviour change. And exactly, wearing a sleep watch is not going to fix your sleep. It might give you some education around the duration and it may or may not accurately tell you about quality, uh, but it's, the, it's what you do with that information um, and, and actually pu- putting the effort and having the discipline to um, get good sleep rather than, um, you know, do what, doing all the fun stuff all the time. And it's interesting, Shana, because uh, there's a book by a guy called Brian McKenzie and Andy Galpin, um, who you probably know, um, they got a book called Unplugged, and it's pretty interesting. And in the book, they say that in the first quarter of 2016, Americans bought 19.7 million fitness wearables, an increase of 67% over the previous year. And by 2020, they reckon the global market for fitness-focused apps would be expected to be $30 billion. Mm-hmm. Now, yeah. what's interesting mm-hmm. about that is we have those trackers, but you look on the other side, we're getting fatter, we're getting sicker, and we're sleeping less. Yep. So really, like... Not working. <laughs> is technology yeah. fixing it? I think it's making us like crazy. And so I like, yeah. some of the, I like some of the stuff, you know, that these guys are kind of um, discussing about just unplug from technology, run to how your body feels, move to how your body feels and get back in tune with yourself as opposed to having 20 devices, naps hanging off you, measuring everything and just get back in tune with your body. Exactly. And there's no wearable that I have ever seen that actually tells you what to do. They'll give you the data, but they don't tell you what to do. And most yeah. the general public's not an expert in what to do to correct um, what you've, you know, the data that you're given. Yeah, no, I see it heaps. So the last question I want to ask you, which kind of jumps out with this one is, um, and it's something I've started to look at a little bit more, um, and you mentioned it earlier on, around meditation and so on. But I'm interested to know, have you been looking at anything around the use of breath work of calming athletes, particularly those who might be getting nervous before event, they may deal with anxiety, depression, um, just, you know, um, may have some general kind of nervousness throughout the week and get kind of quite hyped up. Have you looked at anything around um, breath work and, and using breath? Because I like, and the reason I asked this question is obviously doing um, 
long distance runner for many years and, and jiu-jitsu, I have found that the, the control of my breath that I've developed, particularly in jiu-jitsu, has really helped me in swimming. So I'm not kind of, my mm. panicky state in the water is not as bad because I'm able to control my breath. So I nearly just visualize myself, you know, being in jiu-jitsu or, or running. And so I'm able to control my breath. So once I have that base of um, good breath control, then I can apply it to other things. Um, is that something that you guys have looked at or you have looked at individually? Um, and what's your thoughts on it? Yeah, um, great question. And it's definitely the way that we're heading with recovery. So uh, this mental aspect of recovery. So, you know, we've as physiologists, we live our life in the periphery and now we realise, oh, there's actually a brain there that we need to pay some attention to. Um, <laughs> so um, I've got a PhD student, um, Susanna Russell, she's just started at the um, University of Queensland and her whole PhD is on this idea of mental recovery. And um, we do work, I know the psychologists, the sports psychs at work, um, do advocate um, different breathing techniques. Um, we've done a little bit of work around neurofeedback and biofeedback, so teaching people um, how to relax and how to breathe. And I just think it's um, a very much undervalued, um, underused um, tool. Some, some athletes I can talk to, especially, so, you know, the area around biofeedback and sleep is quite interesting and, you know, the area that, um, you know, if you are, you know, slightly one of these more anxious people um, that, you know, these breathing techniques can be, um, can be really, really helpful. So, you know, there's, there's that, kind of, um, that kind of work out there. And so, um, yeah, look, I think it's one of those things that I talk to athletes who struggle to fall asleep and, you know, you kind of work at it you work out that it's a, an anxiety stress thing and then you know you talk to them about either going to see a sports psych or trying meditation or trying relaxation or trying breathing exercises some of them will go yep i'll have a go and some of them you know their eyeballs will just roll in the back of the head and you know they're like are you are, are you kidding but i think if they would do it if they would do you know there's some great breathing apps and there's some great biofeedback tools you know and athletes like shiny things that go bling and you know there's good Good stuff now on these different breathing um, breathing apps and, and techniques and tools with biofeedback to teach you how to do that and to monitor it. And I think if we could get more athletes to engage in those strategies, then that would be really beneficial. And I think part of the reason too is we see athletes who sleep fine in the real world, they get to a major competition like the Olympics and they lose their minds. And trying to get them to have these tools that they can practice, like you say, so now you're in the pool and you don't have that panicky effect. These things that athletes can take with them, practice now, and they might be not very stressed or coping with life pretty well, but then they've got something to fall back on mm. when mm. things fall apart. And I think that's really important. And if we could get more athletes to do that, then I think we'd be in a, a really good place. Yeah, that routine and discipline will help them when things do go astray. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, that's great. Mm. So on that point, Shauna, um, I'm going to tell you a joke before you go. Um, I would expect that. You're going to find this very funny. In approximately six weeks, I'm going to be undertaking one of the most difficult, strenuous, hazardous, mentally difficult challenges I've ever taken in my life. I'm going to do a 72-hour silent retreat. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> you. Yeah, okay. me. That's, what, that's what everybody says. You? Can you tweet when you come out of that alive? Let us know. I'm really nervous. When I start talking about it, actually, start, my palms start sweating. Like, I'm actually sweating. My palm is sweating now, thinking about it. 
Um, the 72 hours of getting up at half four in the morning, uh, eating vegan food, doing meditation, all that is going to kill me because number one, uh, from years of running and breaking bones and sitting in that lotus position is going to be impossible. So I'll be Mm -hmm. like some sort of, um, mangled metal in the corner, uh, and no talking, no discussing. Uh, yeah. I'm actually, no jokes. No jokes, yeah. No, like, you know me, Sean, if I see a comedic moment, I have to pounce. So if I see someone falling over, I'm going to have to jump and just, like, bite my tongue and jump into a bush because, um, yeah, I won't be, I don't know how I'm going to do it. But anyway, it's going to be interesting, 72 hours, and then if I can get through that successfully, I'm going to do a 10-day one. Wow. Yeah. I'd love to hear about that. love to hear how it goes. Yeah, so do I. My wife, my wife just rolled her eyes. She goes, <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> Good luck with that, Ian. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to try and focus on my breath up there and, and, and probably recalibrate my sleep because you go to bed when it's dark and get up when it starts getting mm-hmm. light. So yeah. it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, because I'm as guilty as anybody about overtraining and overworking. Mm-hmm. So um, it would be interesting to see. <laughs> so, yeah, I thought you'd enjoy that joke because everybody calls, says that's a joke. So we'll see. <laughs> good luck good luck after five minutes I might start crying at least you won't have heaps of people saying what did you say trying to understand you you're not going to have that issue with that Shona you had to finish with like a a slightly racist remark (laughs) oh you know I only say it because I like you yeah well when you were talking about Polynesian guys not liking the cold water I thought maybe I'm Polynesian because I hate getting into cold water as well so you know People think because you come from a cold, wet country, you like cold and wet. It's quite the opposite. That's why I moved to Australia. <laughs> Fair enough. No comment. No comment. Yeah, we'll leave it there. So, Shauna, um, what's, what's next for you um, in terms of competitions that you're going to support athletes? What big events do you have coming up? And how can people get in contact with you if you're open to contact? Yeah, yeah. Contact, probably the easiest way at the moment is just um, probably through Twitter, Um Send me a message. Um, easy to uh, easy to get in contact with on there. Um, and I guess the next big thing that's coming up really is um, is with um, swimming. Um, they've got a couple of major sort of major comps coming up. Then there's everyone sort of prepping prepping for Tokyo. So it's not that far away. Things things happen fast. So just finished Com Games. That's that that one's over. And then um, into into um, prep for Tokyo. Okay. Very good. And so what's your handle on Twitter? Uh, just Shona Halson. Just Shona Halson. All right. Shona, I got one last request for you when you go back, just um, in regards to Tokyo for the swimming. Can you let the Australian swimming coach know that my 100-meter freestyle is 1 minute, 41, <laughs> 1 minute 41 seconds? I think that would be hard to beat. My 50-meter is 45 seconds. Again, I think it'll be hard to beat. Um, so just let him know about that. Also, as well, Shona, what? As I say, if you can halve your time, I think you're in with a shot. Oh, no, I, I, I'm, I'm hoping to get under the nepotism rule. You know, it's not. It's who you know, not what you can do. Um, yeah. Also as well, can you ask the, maybe the TV people um, if we could do something different at Tokyo? Because my wife and I were speaking about this, watching the Commonwealth Games. A lot of times in the swimming pool, they don't use the outside lanes. They just use the, the six lanes or the eight lanes, yeah. whatever, if it's a 10-lane pool. Can you put like a normal average Joe Soap in the, in the, in the yes. mayor lane Swimming 100 meters, that's like an average swimmer. So people can kind of compare about how good these swimmers are. And the same thing running as well on the track, on the 400 meter track. Get some, like, you know, know, sort of like middle aged 40 year old guy or girl to run on the inside 
or try even do the high jump or the pole fall and see. Like that would be great. Mm. I'd have like the normal Olympics and then like the Olympics actually happening slightly to the side. What do you think about that idea? I think that's fantastic. I think there's a few sports um, like track cycling where you couldn't put a normal human in because you might cause carnage. But I think um, most, a lot of the sports, you know, team sports, um, but yeah, I think that would be fantastic to actually show people. Like, and, and even, you know, when you see track cycling actually in the velodrome and you see how fast they go, how close their wheels are, that they've got no brakes, that the banks are ridiculously steep, you actually really get an understanding when you're there. So I would say, yes, we need to put people in, um, real people, to, to, for comparison, so people can really see how good these guys are and to get more people out to just watch some of these events in the flesh and to just to really see how extraordinary some of these athletes are. I leave those two tasks with you. Uh, one, to have the swimming course by my times and two, to go to the uh, Channel 7 coverage or whoever's doing the next coverage and, and see if we can get those in. So that's your, that's your two biggest tasks going ahead, Shona. I'm so, on it. Yeah. Um, other than that, um, yeah, don't get dizzy watching the velodrome. <laughs> thank, <laughs> thank you very much. Thanks, Ian. Good to chat. Cheers. Sometimes in life you feel the fight is over. And it seems as though the ride is on. I always said that I was gonna make it Now it's plain for everyone to see But this game I'm in don't take no prisoners Just casualties I know that everything is gonna change Even the friends I knew before me go But this dream is the life I've been searching for Started believing that I was the greatest My life was never gonna be the same Cause with the money came a different status That's when things changed Now I'm too concerned with all the things I own Blinded by all the pretty girls I see I'm beginning to lose my integrity Sometimes in life you feel the fight is over And it seems as though the ride is on I never used to be a troublemaker Now I don't even want to please the fans No autographs, no interviews, no pictures Endless demands Gave in the vices that were clearly wrong The types that seemed to make me feel so right But some things you may find Can take over your life Burn all my bridges, now I've run out of places And there's nowhere left for me to turn Been caught in compromising situations I should have learned From all those times I didn't walk away When I knew that it was best to go Is it too late to show you the shape of my heart? Sometimes in life you feel the fight is over And it seems as though the riding's on The riding's on The riding's on
mistakes Think I don't care But you don't realize what this means to me So let me have just one more chance I'm not the man I used to be Used to be This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is brought to you by Orbiz. Orbiz are a global consulting firm who facilitate the rapid delivery of significant and sustainable improvements in performance across a diversity of industries. They facilitate turnaround, transformation and strategic improvement programs through the development and implementation of a system and culture of lean and continuous improvement. Now, Orbis are growing their global presence across the Asia-Pacific region, Europe, Middle East, Africa and the Americas. Their range of services include optimization of business development systems to deliver growth, through to operating system improvements that reduce cost by improvements in safety, quality and productivity. So what this means for your business, typically they will give you outcomes such as a reduction in cost. Who can beat that? Increasing capacity utilization, throughput, increase in revenue, profitability, and overall customer value and satisfaction. Orbis have extensive experience in facilitating change in challenging environments by utilizing lean tools and methodology, joining engagements across the world, including diverse um, sectors and industry, such as mining, energy, construction, transport, aerospace, manufacturing, and healthcare. Orbis people are industry professionals driven to achieve sustained results through the development of trusted relationships. So head over to www.orbiz.io, that's Orbiz, O-R-B-I-Z.io, for more information, get in contact with them to organize a visit today to your organization. This episode of Sleep for Performance Radio is also brought to you by Sleep WA, Western Australia. Now, Sleep WA is one of the only few nationally accredited sleep laboratories in Western Australia, meaning that they have put their services and quality systems to the test against the national standards. They provide commitment and dedication by providing you a high quality service. Now, I've worked with these guys before. They are excellent. Um, they are a very diligent business and one that is trusted here in Western Australia. Sleep WA is one of the only sleep and respiratory centres to provide holistic care and treatment for all sleep and respiratory disorders, not just obstructive sleep apnea, which many people would have hear, heard about in, uh, in the news or in, in the scientific literature or even on this podcast. So Sleep WA believe that all patients deserve compassion, support, multiple treatment options and education to allow them to actively participate in their own journey to better health. Sleep WA provides a comprehensive service to diagnose and recommend treatment of all respiratory diseases and sleep disorders. This includes rare sleep disorders and those complicated by cardiovascular disease. The Sleep WA philosophy is to offer patients expert diagnosis, effective therapy and supportive guidance on the road to better health and sleep. They are a leader in respiratory and sleep medicine and provide the following service at locations throughout Western Australia. 
consultation with experienced specialists, comprehensive respiratory testing for lung disease, asthma and allergies, inpatient sleep studies, home-based sleep studies, that's pretty handy, insomnia management programs for insomnia and circadian disorders, and fatigue management programs to reduce risk and improve health in the workplace. So get started on your journey towards better health and sleep today and head over to Sleep WA, that's WA for Western Australia, and get in contact with Dion and Jack over there. This episode is also brought to you finally by Fatigue Science. The Fatigue Science Ready Band is a wearable device that helps you improve safety and your performance through the science of sleep. The Ready Band is a way more than just a sleep tracker. It's the world's only sleep measurement tool that's paired with safety, a biomechanical fatigue model, which has a predictive algorithm. So what that means is it's actually predicting into the future what your performance is going to be based upon your data. This was initially developed by the US Army Research Lab and was uh, built to improve the performance of soldiers in operational environments. Now this device has been adapted to work in elite athletes and industrial workers. This is also a device that I have validated in the laboratory myself and I have used extensively in industry and research applications. As listeners of this podcast, you probably know that restorative sleep is about more than just the numbers of hours of sleep you get, factors like when you sleep, how much sleep that you have accrued, and even your local um, geographical location, so a sunset, the time you go to bed, the time the sun comes up, all of these things are all these different factors in chronobiology um, that affect your performance. So this ready band was developed to incorporate all these factors that can really help you understand the real impact of sleep on your life. So ReadyBand not only helps you track changes to your fatigue over time, but also allows you to discover new ways to achieve personal fatigue improvement goals. So you can actually measure the improvements that you're making uh, as you go. Now, ReadyBand is is relied on by lots of different organizations and they've got a very impressive resume. So winners of the Super Bowl, Seattle Seahawks have used this, the Chicago Cubs have used this, military special forces and workers who operate in uh, long shifts in dangerous environments such as tunneling underground, mining, oil and gas. Uh, it's been used in elite sports such as rugby, basketball, um, it's been used at the Australian Institute of Sport, it's been used in uh, elite MMA athletes who compete in the UFC, so it's a wide variety of applications. So if fatigue is important to you and your organization, whether you're a sports team or an industrial workforce, head to fatiguescience.com, that's fatiguescience.com, to speak to a member of their team and to learn more about how the ReadyBand can improve safety and performance in your organization. Thank you for listening to these ads, now on to the episode. 